Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.11, Bacon's Rebellion, Endgame. Hello everybody and welcome back. Last time, when we left off, we saw Governor Berkeley make the inexplicable decision to retake Jamestown. Now I say inexplicable because the guy basically takes the city alone. Despite his efforts to rally people to his cause, everybody saw the writing on the wall and really wanted nothing to do with Berkeley or his plan. He had made offers of plunder and for slaves and servants he had given the promise of freedom. However, everybody knew that Berkeley was out of his mind and this just wasn't going to go well for him. This week, we are going to pick up the story with Berkeley retaking Jamestown. This week is also going to, as the episode title so suggests, bring us to the end game of Bacon's Rebellion. Now, if you're just totally taken in by the story, don't worry, I've got one more episode on Bacon's Rebellion planned for the next episode. That will serve as something of a retrospective where we look back and discuss the legacy of the rebellion as well as the longer term effects. However, before we get there, we've got some business to wrap up this week. Picking up our story on September the 7th, 1676, Berkeley and a small handful of people who remained loyal to him retook Jamestown. Nathaniel Bacon at this point was distracted with fighting Indians, so Berkeley was able to take the city without much problem. Now, I want to be clear that when I say Berkeley took Jamestown alone, I'm not literally saying the guy walked in there all alone and captured a city. Berkeley wasn't suicidal. In fact, his only actual advantage over Bacon at this time was that he was going to outnumber the people's general. Now, I know what you're saying here. I've just gone on and on about the fact that Berkeley was basically on his own. So what gives? Which is it? Berkeley retook Jamestown on board the Rebecca, a 26-gun ship which had traded sides a few times during the course of the rebellion. The Rebecca itself had a crew of around 26 men who were all willing to fight for Berkeley. He also had around 80 additional men who were still loyal and willing to fight on his behalf. The men who were willing to stick around likely knew that they weren't backing the winning horse. There seemed to be a broad consensus that the mission wasn't going to end well. Rather, these were men who probably believed, and rightfully so, that the loss of the rebellion for them was likely synonymous with death. And to be clear by that, I do mean literal, actual death. For this exercise, we are going to go ahead and assume that the crew will join in on the fighting as they were at least nominally loyal to Berkeley. However, that may not be a great assumption. Regardless, though, this means that Berkeley is going to have just over 100 men with him. Still not a big enough force that he is going to be able to do much. After all, recall that he was trying to get 1,200 men over to his cause just six weeks before in Gloucester. Knowing that he did not have enough of a force to challenge Bacon, Berkeley turned to the most surefire way to raise men in a hurry. He hired people to come in and fight for him. There does seem to be a wide range of numbers to just how many people Berkeley brought with him, ranging from around 200 to as many as about 800. All things considered, I think the best bet for the actual forces was probably somewhere right in the middle of that. So now with about 100 loyal men and several hundred mercenaries, Berkeley had something that resembled an actual fighting force. Plus, he came to Jamestown, which remember is an island, on board a large, heavily armed ship. Berkeley had promised the men that the capture of Jamestown would be fast, easy, and would bring with it the chance for riches and prosperity. 
For his part, Bacon had not left Jamestown completely open when he left the city for New Kent. Jamestown was garrisoned with approximately 500 men. However, despite only being slightly outnumbered at this point, the men recognized that they were outgunned and that they were not going to be able to hold on to the city. Quickly deciding that they weren't going to be able to hold the city, the men all concluded that this is not the hill any of them wanted to die on. Withdrawing quickly from Jamestown, the men went down to New Kent to inform Bacon that Berkeley had returned and had recaptured the town. A small handful of men did in fact hang around and resist during September 7th. However, by the end of the day, the city was all but abandoned. Berkeley would enter the city officially on September 8th, retaking it without having to fire a single shot. Berkeley knew that even though he had managed to recapture Jamestown without actually fighting for it, it was not a sustainable solution. Really, nothing had significantly changed. Berkeley's hopes of victory still looked slim as popular support throughout the colony was still very much behind Bacon. While it must have been nice to celebrate a victory for recapturing the capital of Virginia, Berkeley must have also recognized that this was a less than ideal situation. The rebels had not abandoned the city because they had been defeated. Rather, they left to regroup for a much bigger fight. Berkeley would have had no misconceptions. Bacon was going to be coming to Jamestown, and if Berkeley hoped to not just hold the city but also survive, he was going to have to fight for it. By this point, Jamestown itself had become a sore point for many of the more rural settlers. The original city of the colony had grown substantially in the past few decades under Berkeley's leadership. We have talked much about the pilfering of funds from taxpayers. Many of those funds had gone to improve Jamestown itself. This all follows. It wasn't 1607 anymore. Virginians are not dying in droves anymore like they did in those early years. Furthermore, over the decades, and especially under Berkeley, something of an aristocracy had formed within the colony. These were the men loyal to Berkeley, those who had gotten rich at the expense of the planter class. Even within Jamestown, Berkeley kept himself surrounded by those who were loyal to him, something which would have created a pseudo-court system within the city. As has always been the case, men of means want to live somewhere that was nicer than a mere backwater. In Virginia, Jamestown was going to be that place, and accordingly it had become the most well-developed and nicest place in all of Virginia. And to be clear, don't start comparing Jamestown to London or Paris. They're still on completely different levels, and it is a completely unfair comparison. However, for those living in Virginia, Jamestown was the best that they had. For those on the outside looking in at the growing city, a city largely growing because they had paid such a high amount of taxes, anger festered. For the rural planters, Jamestown represented everything that was wrong with the Berkeley administration. Knowing that it was only a matter of time before Bacon and the rebels reached the city, Berkeley quickly turned towards the task of preparing for the defense of Jamestown. Bacon had taken Jamestown before with little resistance, and Berkeley had no intention of being caught flat-footed again. Berkeley went to work and had the town fortified by those mercenaries that he had hired. For the next five days, men worked overtime in order to entrench the colony and surround it with a large wall to keep out the invading rebels. As predicted, on the morning of September 13th, the first rebels arrived in Jamestown. Now, to be clear, do not start imagining that this is some massive horde of people that are just rolling up on Jamestown all at once. 
Bacon had been out fighting the Pamunkey for the last few weeks and had a moderate amount of success against them. The Pamunkey people were basically only guilty of being Indians in Virginia at the wrong time and had felt the wrath of Bacon and his men. As a side note, the Pamunkey people were one of the remnants of the Powhatan Confederacy. Following success in the field, Bacon was about ready to pull out when he got word of Berkeley having recaptured Jamestown. Bacon, along with his Pamunkey prisoners, quickly made their way back to the capital. Along the way, it does appear that Bacon was picking up freshmen who were anxious to join in on the action. Throughout the night of the 13th, Bacon's men dug in. By the next morning, they had their own defenses in place for the coming battle. Bacon's men had done a good enough job that, for all intents and purposes, Jamestown was now under siege. The opening shots of the attack came from Bacon's troops who unloaded their muskets through gaps in the wall surrounding the city. What followed was a running gun battle between the Berkeleyan forces and Bacon's men. The battle for Jamestown quickly morphed into the single biggest engagement of the rebellion. The first several days of fighting were spent largely attacking at a distance. This is where you get Bacon's men shooting through the gaps in the walls. The forces under Berkeley did fare better in the range of heavy weaponry, as they control the cannons inside of Jamestown. In addition to the cannons inside of Jamestown, Berkeley controlled armed ships across the bay that were firing into rebel lines. Despite this advantage in artillery, however, the rebels held their positions as the forces under Berkeley were unable to break through Bacon's lines. Even after several attempts to land men to break those lines, the rebels held on. However, this isn't to say that they did so unscathed. Berkeley's forces had success in raiding rebel positions and stealing precious ammunition and supplies. In addition, Berkeley managed to take several prisoners. In what would become something of a habit for the embattled governor, Berkeley wasted no time in having the captured rebels hung. While this was certainly meant to be a threat to the rebels outside the fort still fighting, it just helped grow that rift between them and Berkeley even deeper. The governor of the colony, the man sent there by the king to lead them, was hanging the citizens of Virginia openly. For a man who was already commanding so little loyalty, these hangings did nothing but reinforce why they were fighting in the first place. It showed the regard that the governor held them in, and once again is a huge misstep for Berkeley. On September 15th, Berkeley attempted to deliver a decisive attack. Recognizing that his best chance at defeating Bacon was doing so quickly before more men could come reinforce him, Berkeley decided that it was the time for that aggressive move to remove Bacon from the board once and for all. Having his men form lines, he planned to lead a full assault on the rebel position. The problem for Berkeley is that by this point, he didn't really have a ton of men just jumping up and down to be on the front line of an assault. His solution was to gather up servants and slaves. Well, their masters would, you know, supervise and be in that second line to back them up, just in case. The servants and slaves were not terribly excited about this prospect, and they were not exactly in the game of being professional soldiers. On the other hand, Many of the men fighting under Bacon by this point had at least seen some action fighting against the Indians and had learned how to handle themselves in a fight. The results of the battle were predictable. The lines advanced and were quickly mowed down by the superior rebel forces. With the first line of the attack now gone, the fight fell to that second line, 
That second line, that was made up by those who were still actually loyal to Berkeley. With the battle now in their hands, these men who were still loyal to Berkeley stood bravely and led a triumphant attack breaking Bacon's lines, capturing the wayward general, and bringing the entire rebellion to a dramatic end. Or after becoming exposed, they decided that they had had more than enough fighting for one day and turned and ran just as quickly as their feet would carry them. The defeat of Berkeley's forces in so many ways marked the end of the battle. The actual fighting would continue for several days. However, the last real chance that Berkeley and forces had vanished in this assault. The fighting wasn't over, but now it really was just a matter of time for Bacon. With the Virginia forces now in shambles, Bacon decided that this would be a wonderful moment to flex just how much power he had. Bacon held a parade of the Indians he had captured, a sign of just how much he had defied Berkeley's authority. What had begun months earlier with Bacon leading an unauthorized raid against frontier Indians had now accumulated in him parading them through the Virginia capital. As this parade was going on, Bacon's men managed to get their cannon up and running and quickly opened fire on both the Royalist ships in the harbor and on the statehouse itself. So, at this point, you might be wondering, what is it that Berkeley is doing? How is he going to mount his comeback? At the moment, however, it appears that the guy has just kind of hunkered down and was doing his best to weather the storm. Undoubtedly, by this point, morale inside of the fort was approaching zero, as Berkeley and his men just hung around, trying not to die. According to one source I saw, it wasn't like the rebels actually were hitting anybody with the cannons. However, the fact that they were hiding wasn't a great moment for any of them. On that note, it is worth saying that I found virtually no evidence that the cannons really do much more during the rebellion than inspire terror. Apparently, nobody in Virginia at this time was a great shot, and most of the cannonballs just totally missed their targets. Now, in a strange note regarding the sources, I can't seem to get a great sense of when the events I'm talking about actually took place. I've got a few sources on the matter, and they all give me a range of dates between September 18th and September 20th. The internet was little help as well, as I was finding the same range in dates online. So, suffice it to say, the events that we are talking about here took place sometime between the 18th and the 20th. However, it looks like there is still some room for debate as to the specific date. Regardless, however, of the specific date, the situation around Jamestown was dire. It was a wet morning as the rain pelted down. The Berkeley forces were holed up inside the fort trying to figure out what to do next, well, Bacon and his rebels plotted how to bring the entire affair to an end. The rebels were, by this point, getting tired of being outside and wet and wanted just as much to go home. Bacon decided that it was time for him to make his big move, and on the morning, sometime between the 18th and the 20th, the rebel forces invaded Jamestown. What ensued was nothing short of slaughter. Prior to the invasion, the revolutionaries had taken an oath that they would give no quarter to the remaining loyalists. They wanted this done, and they wanted it done now. After a few days of looting the material wealth from Jamestown, the wealth that Berkeley had been unable to evacuate, reality set in for the rebels. As for Berkeley himself, it appears that he had evacuated along with the goods that he was trying to get out. This causes a serious problem for Nathaniel Bacon. 
Bacon and his men realized that they were not going to be able to hold Jamestown long term. Part of this was due to the fact that Berkeley could still theoretically raise a force with the official Virginia militia. The decision was therefore made, and likely on the morning of September 20th, Jamestown was lit on fire. The fire began at the State House in the main church of Virginia. It was that anti-Berkeley coalition inside of Jamestown that led the march. Men like Lawrence and Drummond, men who had once called Jamestown home, lit fire to their own properties. Among the things that so symbolically burnt were the land grants that those close to Berkeley so relied upon and benefited from. Just down the river, after escaping from the capital with his remaining loyalists, Berkeley could see the glow from the fire that was consuming Jamestown. Reports say that the entire town was essentially flattened. Virtually nothing survived the fire. Jamestown has been with us since 1607. It marked the landing spot of the first permanent English colonists in North America. It had survived the starving time, multiple Indian massacres, a decades-long war with Powhatan. And now, just like that, Jamestown was gone. It is worth noting that Jamestown would never really recover from this. The town would rebuild. However, another fire in the 1690s spelled the ultimate end for Jamestown. The capital and the city were relocated to Williamsburg. For those out on the peripheries of Virginia, Jamestown had become a place that encompassed all the things that were wrong with Berkeley and the existing government. It had grown lavish by colonial standards, of course, and was growing more opulent at the expense of the common planter. The town, just as much as Berkeley himself, had become a hated symbol of oppression and the spoils of overtaxation. For the followers of Bacon, there were few people who were terribly sad to see Jamestown go. With the burning of Jamestown, things for Berkeley had hit rock bottom. With his list of support down to just a handful and the capital still smoldering, it must have seemed impossible at this point that Berkeley could even survive the day. For Bacon, however, the question had switched to what next? Berkeley, for the time being, was basically a non-factor. After the burning of Jamestown, he wasn't about to be rushing back into battle. So, as so many revolutionaries have had to figure out, Bacon was left with having to decide what to do now that he had won the war. It does seem that sometime around the early part of October 1676, there was at least some discussions about a fully independent Chesapeake, an actual break with the English Empire. This is something that, up until this point, Bacon had consciously shied away from. However, for the moment, the sky was the limit. Immediately after his victory in Jamestown, the next spot to attack was Berkeley's plantation at Green Springs, which was promptly looted once again. Bacon also took the occasion to take a page out of the Berkeley playbook. There at Green Springs, Bacon officially denounced Berkeley as a traitor. With his attention turning away from the armed conflict to the more practical governance of the colony, Bacon set out to accomplish just that. With Berkeley having fled the colony entirely, there was basically no functional government anymore. Bacon was no anarchist. He understood that establishing a government was of paramount importance. The first thing that they needed to do was find a replacement for the governor's position. For that, they turned to Sir Henry Chesley. Chesley was a staunch Berkeleyan. However, Bacon liked him for a couple of reasons. First of all, he was a deputy governor, so he had the necessary legitimacy something that Bacon personally would have lacked. Second, he was a hostage of Bacon's, 
which is something that gave Bacon an advantage when it came to dictating the terms. Finally, Chesley was viewed as being somebody who was relatively weak. After all, it is not like Bacon and company wanted to place the power in the hands of somebody who would be an actual threat, but rather they wanted somebody who would act as a stooge for those really controlling the levers of power. As we turn to the fall of 1676, the Virginia colony looked dramatically different than it had just a season before. When spring gave way to summer, we were at the very early stages of the rebellion. Then it was Bacon and a small group of men going up against the royal governor. Now, just three months later, Jamestown was gone, that same governor had fled the colony, and Bacon and his men were discussing new governments and a potential break from England itself. Beyond that, the rebellion was growing as discontent towards the crown and their policies spread throughout the entire Chesapeake. Maryland was quickly becoming an increasing hotbed, fueled by what they had seen in Virginia. Suddenly, Marylanders were petitioning the crown and airing their grievances towards colonial policies. Chief amongst their complaints was the fact that England was getting all the benefit from the hard work of the colonists. Colonists wanted more control over the goods that they were producing something that the Navigation Acts stood directly in the way of. Secondly, they wanted the additional recognition from the king that all the American colonies should become royal colonies under the direct control of the king rather than the proprietary colonies under the control of money-hungry corporations. In other words, the colonists were sick and tired of being under the thumb of the proprietors whose only goal was to make a profit. They wanted to be a royal colony under the direct control of the king, as were all English citizens back on the home island. With the revolution threatening to explode and envelop the entire region, there were still clearly recognized problems back amongst the revolutionaries. One of the biggest advantages that the rebellion had so far is the speed at which it had moved. However, there was always a ticking clock on the rebellion and that timer was how long it was going to take England to respond. Surely, the king was not going to get the news that the colony was in revolt, shrug his shoulders, and ignore the problem. The king was always going to respond to this. For Bacon, his plan was to make sure that when England did respond, they already had a plan in place. That plan is that by the time the English started asking questions, that they should have a system in place that was functional enough that it simply made more sense to come to some kind of an agreement rather than to risk the continuity of the colony. We are going to talk more next week about the English response when it did in fact come. By the middle part of October 1676, the capital of the colony had moved to West Point, a point situated in the middle of Virginia. Bacon continued to grow his territorial gains within Virginia and was coming ever closer to having a fully functional government in place. Those in power had agreed to take yet another oath, pledging their loyalty not only to Bacon's government, but also against all enemies in whatever form that they may come. This included Indians, other Virginians, and most importantly, the English themselves. With everything coming together and talks increasing about a full separation from England, it seemed almost impossible that the rebellion could fail at this point. Berkeley had been disposed and everything was going great. However, unbeknownst to Bacon at the time, he had faced his greatest enemy back in Jamestown and while fighting the Indians in the swamps of Virginia. After months of living outdoors in dirty conditions, Bacon had contracted dysentery. It is a fun thing to sit around and think about what could have been. Could 1676 have marked the break from England? Could Nathaniel Bacon have been the face of a new nation? 
how would Bacon's forces have handled themselves against the English army that was now quickly approaching? However, these questions are going to remain something that exists only in an alternate timeline. On October 26, 1676, Nathaniel Bacon died. He was just 29 years old. Nathaniel Bacon had become the face of a rebellion that would have ripple effects across the history of Virginia. His rebellion was the first rebellion that England had to face in the colonies, and it had largely been successful. Berkeley had, for the time being at least, been driven from the colony. The very symbol of the abuses and the corruption under Berkeley had been burnt to the ground in Jamestown. While the rebellion would continue on, in many ways the future of it had come crashing down hard on that late October day. The rebellion would continue to some extent for years to come, and the English forces would spend significant time and energy stamping out the remainders of it. However, as something that was ever going to succeed, the rebellion was indeed over. When I say that the rebellion was over, I'm not just talking about the loftier goals, things like Chesapeake independence, which is a thought that absolutely died with Bacon. However, I am talking about the rebels' ability to maintain what they had already gained. Governor Berkeley would soon be back in the colony, and what ensued was his vengeance that he unleashed upon those who had followed Bacon. As it turns out, Bacon was such a critical part of his own rebellion that it simply could not survive its namesake's death. In the aftermath of Bacon's death, numerous things are going to happen. Berkeley is going to return to power. English forces are going to arrive to restore order. What ultimately would follow was a decade-long occupation of the Virginia colony, something that everybody in the colony hated. That occupation would in many ways lead to a reconciliation between the planters and the estate owners as they now could align against a common enemy, namely the occupying English army. Next week, we are going to bring an end to our series on Bacon's Rebellion. We are going to discuss in more detail the aftermath of Bacon's Rebellion, the English response, and the future of the colony, and how the events of the rebellion would alter life moving forward in Virginia. Finally, we are going to take the time for a short retrospective, where we examine the legacy of Nathaniel Bacon and his rebellion. As always, I want to thank you all for listening, and I will see you back here in two weeks' time, where we will put Bacon's Rebellion to bed for good.